0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: You're listening to the ERLC podcast.
2: During this time in quarantine, I've discovered a, a fresh love for strawberry iced Pop-Tarts. I'm pounding those things. <laughs> who who puts a Pop-Tart in a freezer? Put them in the freezer? Who puts them in the freezer? What are you talking about?
1: Who said something
3: about a freezer? Oh, I thought you said you like frozen, <laughs> frozen strawberry Pop-Tarts. Yes, frosted. frosted.
2: strawberry Pop-Tarts. Oh, fr- fr- <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I was just thinking like, gosh, I heat up my Pop-Tarts. I, I don't freeze them.
1: Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolette. Hey, everyone. And Brent Leatherwood.
3: Glad to be with you once again,
1: y'all. And later in the show, we'll have a special guest, Chelsea Sobolik, who is one of our colleagues. She works in our DC office, and we're excited to talk to her later in the show. But for now, uh, Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week.
2: Yeah, thanks, Josh. So first up, we have a piece by Jared Kennedy, an important piece because it's talking about things to consider when reopening our children's ministries and churches. And Jared interviewed several children's ministers, talked to them, um, got their input, did a really good job with this piece. And just some of the examples would be involve a team of leaders in your decision-making, bathe your planning process in prayer, begin to rebuild your volunteer team right away, uh, make your discipleship plan scalable. So again, you can go online, you can read this. There are 12 uh, steps there uh, that he recommends. And also, just so you know, yesterday we posted a piece on our site by Daniel Patterson and Jen Kintner that um, gives more tips for just opening the whole church in general as pastors and leaders are considering what to do there.
1: Yeah, that's really good, Lindsay. As we are looking toward reopening churches, uh, there is going to be a considerable amount of uh, uncertainty and a lot of questions that are coming in, particularly about what to do uh, in the area of children's ministry, you know, because we think about uh, the kind of order that you can put in place for adults when you give very clear instructions about how to come into the church, where to sit, how to follow appropriate social distancing guidelines. Uh, That is obviously a very different situation when you're talking about kids and the way the children's ministry is typically conducted. And so this is something, uh, this is kind of a vital resource that I think that we're able to provide. And Jared uh, is is one of the people that you can, he's one of those solid voices you can turn to uh, for guidance through something like this.
2: Yeah. And the important thing to remember is that for every church in every location, it's going to be different and it could be two steps forward, one step back. So again, these are guidelines, suggestions, uh, but you have to pray and consider how this applies to your church in your specific area.
3: And that second piece that you mentioned, Lindsay, from uh, our colleagues, Daniel Patterson and Jen Kentner, I'm actually sharing that with chiefs of staffs of governors uh, across the country to give them a resource that uh, they can share with their own churches to help think through different um, areas that they need to consider when reopening. And so that's uh, just another point of evidence of of what we do at the ERLC as we are seeking to serve our churches and particularly in this moment.
2: Yeah. And we're glad to be able to do it and to have the resources to bring these kinds of things together. So moving on to the next piece, uh, we have an article by Eric Costanzo, who is a pastor and his church is doing incredible work with uh, refugee and immigrant neighbors. So he's written an article about seven ways we can serve them during a pandemic. And he points out that there are certain populations that are more vulnerable when a pandemic hits and that uh, our refugee and immigrant neighbors fall into that category because they were facing hardships and they were facing obstacles even before the pandemic hit. And so it just makes things worse. So some of his suggestions here, reach out personally to your immigrant and refugee neighbors, just takes knocking on the door and you can step back, can stay six feet apart Look to address job and income insecurity. He gives some some websites that help translate COVID-19 material so they can um, be aware of what it is that they need to do. And then also, you know, he says, uh, invite your immigrant and refugee neighbors to join your online services. Many are just waiting to be invited and would love to be welcomed into a community. And then finally, what I wanted to highlight is a piece by Alex Ward. Um, And, you know, we have Mother's Day coming up this weekend on the 10th. And hopefully any dads that are listening here and any children will remember and will either run out and buy a card or go on Amazon and buy that last minute gift. But it is Mother's Day, even though it's hard to keep track of the days. Um, But Alex did a piece about five mothers who helped shape Christian history. And I love this because you just, you don't hear about the influence that moms have had on their children's lives and, and throughout Christian history. So some examples here, Monica, he calls her the weeping mother. And this is Augustine's mom who pled with the Lord for Augustine to turn to Christ. And then you hear about Katerina Luther, who um, he calls the industrious mother that while her husband was preaching and, and was used to begin the reformation, she was at home doing incredible things, managing their different businesses and their households and, and gave birth to six children and raised four orphans. So She was no weakling. She was doing all kinds of work for the kingdom. And then um, finally, another example would be Morrow Graham, which I just think is a cool first name. It's Billy Graham's mom. I didn't know that that was her name, but he calls her uh, the praying mother. Billy Graham says that him coming to Christ and serving the Lord in the way that he did is attributed to his mom and the way that she prayed. Uh, for them and for his siblings and for his family. So it's just a neat look at some moms throughout history. And hopefully the moms listening um, to our podcast will just be encouraged to know that their small endeavors that aren't seen are actually big in the hands of the Lord.
1: Lindsay, that was really great and uh, it's cool that that piece comes to us from Alex Ward. Alex is our very own like Jedi researcher at the ERLC. He is the one who is uh, any uh, any information we're looking for at any given time, he can track it down faster uh, and more reliably than anybody else. So that was a that's a very cool piece. It's also a helpful reminder that it is Mother's Day, so hopefully, you know, people will take that under advisement uh, and get it right because it's coming on Sunday. But that's a great look at our ERLC content for the week. Brent, what's been going on in the world of culture?
3: Well, so I want to start off with an inspiring message that came this week from former President George W. Bush. Uh, he put out a, uh, a video from the Bush Center and uh, had the president narrate and his voiceover played over clips of families, couples, healthcare workers, and just everyday moments uh, that have been lost or affected by the coronavirus. We'll link to it in the show notes so you can hear the entire. Uh, audio, but I just thought it was really comforting in this week. And one uh, part that I wanted to pull out uh, in particular for our audience because of the kind of Christian undertones, he said, quote, in this case, we serve our neighbor by separating from them. We cannot allow physical separation to become emotional isolation. This requires us to be not only compassionate, but creative in our outreach. And people across the nation are using the tools of technology in the cause of solidarity
2: love him and that is a great line cannot allow physical separation to become emotional isolation if ever there was a temptation in the midst of a pandemic
3: yeah Lindsay, i thought that was uh just a a really helpful and and needed reminder for all of us in this moment so speaking of the coronavirus uh, this was just a, a really interesting story this week and one thing that has confounded politicians doctors experts and really everyone has been the inconsistent way that the virus has affected different communities. And in some cases, those communities are right next to each other. So the New York Times was looking at this and um, it gave several examples. For for example, uh, in the country of Iran, they have had to resort to mass burials. But right next door in neighboring Iraq, fewer than 100 people have passed away from the coronavirus. Um, In the Caribbean, the Dominican Republic has reported nearly 7,600 cases of the virus, but just across the border. Remember, they're on the same island. Haiti has recorded only about 85. And so the coronavirus has touched almost every country on Earth, but its impact, as it's reported in the story, has seemed very capricious.
2: Brent, this article is fascinating. Did they give any reasoning as to why they thought this was happening?
3: So in this story, they talked to a number of experts and doctors, and there are hundreds of studies underway around the world looking into how demographics, pre-existing conditions, and even genetics might affect this kind of uh, varying impact on communities. And so ultimately, though, they really don't know. That's That's a great question, Lindsay. Another story that caught my eye is that this pandemic is uh, pushing America into a mental health crisis. So the Washington Post noted that anxiety and depression are rising uh, in this moment. And so federal agencies and experts are warning that a historic wave of mental health problems are approaching, be it depression, substance abuse post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicide. And and Lindsay and Josh, I I know over the past few weeks, we've had a few articles and resources on ERLC.com that uh, touch on this subject.
2: We have, and we'll have more to come. Uh, In fact, this month, because it is May already, right, Uh, is National Mental Health Awareness Month. And so I've already reached out to somebody who's connected me with another person that's involved in mental health ministry so we will be having some pieces on this. But an interesting article that I saw, or a quote, actually, I think we might have talked about this before, from Sissy Goff, who works with children, girls, and teenagers, was that those children and teenagers who had reported high levels of anxiety before the pandemic are reporting lower levels of anxiety. So it's interesting to think about how this is affecting adults versus children.
1: Yeah, I can say, you know, just speaking totally for myself and and largely anecdotally, like, One of the unintended benefits of this time, even as there are so many bad things going on, is that it has uh, provided a real opportunity for me to engage directly with my children uh, at a level that I'm just typically not able to do. And so rather than just saving it all for the weekend and trying to pack in as much fun or as time together as we can, like every day throughout the day, there are just periodic breaks, sometimes, you know, forced interruptions by my kids, literally busting into the room where I'm doing whatever, have to lock the door so I can do the podcast to keep them out of here for just a few minutes. But like I get to spend this time with them and I can see the benefit in strengthening our relationships and just enjoying time with one another. And so I hope that's true for a lot of families.
3: Along those same lines, uh, as the coronavirus has elevated in, in the mind of the public and it's been a top policy priority, there's actually another pandemic that Americans have been struggling with, and that is fatal opioid overdoses. Uh, addiction and recovery advocates say the US is now actually battling two epidemics in once. And I remember uh, during the 2016 presidential campaign and uh, through the early part of the Trump administration, This was kind of front of mind for everyone. A number of churches, especially in rural settings, were dealing with the effects of this. That hasn't gone away just because coronavirus is now with us.
2: Yeah, I get it. I have a close family member who has battled with addiction over the years specifically alcohol addiction. And isolation is one of the things that will set that off. And so I can imagine that those who are struggling and they're isolated and maybe have lost jobs and don't have finances and don't have the means to get around other people. um, It's a major temptation to turn to these drugs. And it just breaks my heart.
1: Yeah, and I, I've mentioned on the podcast before. You know, two of uh, the funerals I did early on in my career in ministry uh, were for close family members who have both died because of addictions. And so, hearing stories like this and knowing, just kind of having experienced firsthand uh, the way that it, that a circumstance like this that leads to such isolation is only going to amplify uh, the the effects of those kinds of addictions. I, I'm thinking about pastors right now who are attempting to do ministry to these families and to these individuals. I'm thinking about families that are tempted to care for their loved ones who are experiencing this, certainly this is this is something that not only requires a great deal of, of prayer, but also just something the church needs to take seriously and be, in, be very intentional about in terms of addressing.
3: And so, Lindsay, I'm, I'm thankful that you talked about this being Mental Health Awareness Month and uh, very thankful that we have some writers that are contributing resources this month that hopefully will help serve our pastors. Elsewhere, in more of a religious liberty bent uh, for coronavirus, this week, Illinois Governor Pritzker uh, confirmed that churches will not be allowed to have services with more than 50 people until there's a vaccine, which does seem like a slightly different standard. And I mean, I'll just say it it seems like a bit of the of an overreach uh, by Governor Pritzker in Illinois. I would say we, we have to have a category for things shifting because throughout this pandemic. And even as we talked about earlier, the one consistent thing about coronavirus is how inconsistent it is as it runs its course. Uh, But as we have continually said at the RLC, churches have actually been leading the effort uh, to protect their congregations. And so from our own conversations with churches around the country, the vast majority are going the extra mile to ensure that they've thought through protocols and have incorporated the latest guidance from local officials for safety in their congregations.
1: Yeah, one of the real benefits, we talked about it uh, before on the podcast, of the way that our you know system of government is structured in terms of federalism, is that we aren't seeing kind of from the top down, one size fits all uh, answers or solutions being proposed for how our country should deal with this. We're seeing governors and even uh, officials at the local level trying to make sense of what is what is best here. That does strike me immediately. And when I saw that as something that is probably uh, overburdensome for churches, uh, I know there's still a lot of information that that we do not know, but I think that as we start to see churches uh, begin to regather, even even this week and in the coming weeks, uh, to put those kinds of social distancing uh, protocols into place, I think we're going to learn a lot here, and you know, God willing, not not even something that's so much focused on Governor Pritzker's words here, but just we, we want to see churches meeting again, and hopefully the evidence will bear out that there is, even while we're trying to combat the virus, safe ways for churches to begin resuming their gatherings, even if those gatherings have to look differently than they did before.
3: Well, and so I've reached out to uh, Governor Pritzker's office this week uh, to see if there's ways that we can be helpful at the RLC for them to be more constructive uh, in their communications with religious communities. And look, there are over 1,100 Southern Baptist churches in Illinois. And so this is going to be something that we know a number of our pastors are thinking about and wrestling with uh, in, in that state. Okay, so moving in, uh, warning to parents uh, out there, the the next few minutes, we're going to talk about an event that happened this week. Uh, We just want to forewarn you in case you want to skip ahead for a few minutes and in case you have little ears that might be listening with you. So this week, CNN reported and a number of outlets reported about a new video that has surfaced that showed a man in Georgia was chased and killed while jogging. This is a very sad moment. Uh, it resurfaces the conversations about um, shootings of unarmed black men in our nation. And from the story, a Georgia man was chased, shot, and killed while jogging more than two months ago, and his family is now calling for justice. Ahmad Arbery, 25, was jogging in a Brunswick neighborhood in South Georgia on February 23rd when a man and his son chased him down telling police later that they thought he looked like the suspect in a series of recent break-ins in the area.
2: Really, there are no words, Brent. It's tragic, and it's awful, and it's terrible. Yeah, we just should pray for the day when this this kind of horrible violence comes to an end.
1: Yeah, when we think about, you know, our country's long history of race racial violence. Uh, and then we are confronted with this moment that we are literally, when I say confronted, I mean, literally we're watching it on video. And if you haven't seen the video, I, I don't even, like, I wouldn't even urge you to watch it because it is so gruesome and so difficult to watch because you're, you're watching uh, a death take place. One of the things that I've learned over the last several years, as we have seen uh, instance after instance of these violent shootings involving Black men has been that in every case, you know, we're, we're thinking about our posture and how, do we, how to react. In every single case, when a person who bears the image of God loses their life, we can lament that as a tragedy. It doesn't call for any kind of speculation. It doesn't. You don't have to have wait for facts. You don't. You don't need any more information than that a person bearing God's image lost their life to recognize that that is a tragedy. That there were are people whose lives because of that death will be forever impacted by it. And that for for Christians, like that should be our first posture is is one uh, of lament to recognize that a, that a tragedy has taken place. And so you know I've been encouraged because. I've seen even over the last several hours, you know, since this video came out, Christians uh, all across the country expressing uh, their—white Christians expressing solidarity and and trying to show their support uh, to our black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, to let them know that they are not standing alone, that that they do not have to face these kinds of situations alone by themselves. Um, Dr. Moore posted yesterday, he wrote an article um, addressing this issue about— Uh, Justice and the death of Ahmaud Arbery and in the hour since uh, we posted that yesterday, we have seen so many people uh, speak up and say, uh, you know, thank you for saying this. Thank you for speaking up, because this is this particular issue brings this larger issue back to our consciousness as a society. And it's something that it, it is something that is not going away. It's something that we cannot turn a blind eye toward. And it's you know, it is something where that that cries out uh, for justice and for attention. And we Personally, I I lament this man's death. I feel I grieve for his family. And in my heart, you know, in in my prayers, I beg for justice to be done here.
3: Josh, that was a great and needed word. I would just encourage our audience to continue watching ERLC.com and uh, our social media channels for uh, potentially additional resources that will come out about this. Okay, so in other news, Supreme Court oral arguments resumed this week but with a twist. So this is from uh, uh, an NPR report. The U S Supreme court began an extraordinary two weeks of oral arguments this week. It is the first time in history that the court has allowed live streaming of its audio. And the first time that the court is hearing arguments via telephone hookup instead of actually being there in person. So from the report, I thought this was interesting because the arguments are conducted over the phone. The justices and the lawyers cannot see one another, and listeners will all try to imagine where the justices and lawyers are sitting or standing in their homes to hear or present arguments. In one instance this week,
2: (laughs) I was going to say, and we know where one of them was sitting. (laughs) That's exactly right,
3: Lindsay, because. In one instance this week during oral arguments, a flushing toilet was caught in the background as one attorney was uh, making his case before the highest court in the land.
2: <laughs> it was just incredible. And he I listened to just a little clip of it and he didn't Skip a beat. He just kept going, even with the toilet flushing. So, I that's uh, right. I would en- I would encourage listeners to to check out the briefing Dr. Mueller's podcast because he talks about a history of the toilet appearing on TV and when it first did, and how for so long we wouldn't even talk about the toilet, but now we're hearing it flush and during Supreme Court oral arguments. Yeah.
3: So I didn't know if we were hearing live arguments from the bench or from the throne.
2: <laughs> from that's the good, throne. Right? <laughs> Great dad joke.
3: All right. So on a on a more serious note, uh, there was one religious liberty uh, case in particular that we at the RLC and Southern Baptists were paying attention to. It involved the Little Sisters of the Poor. So our friends over at Baptist Press were reporting that the Trump administration and an order of Roman Catholic nuns urged the Supreme Court this week to uphold federal rules. That protect the rights of employers with religious or moral objections to the Obama-era abortion contraception mandate.
2: Yeah, and we actually have a piece up on erlc.com, just so listeners are aware, by Jeff Pickering, who is in our DC office. So he covers some of the arguments, makes us aware of how we got here and why it's so important.
3: That's right. And and for the the little sisters of the poor. This is kind of like Groundhog Day because they've actually been in front of the Supreme Court on this very issue. But for whatever reason, the state of Pennsylvania decided to uh, try and once again limit their religious liberty rights. And so they find themselves back in front of the Supreme Court.
1: There's a sense in which this is totally maddening to me because here you have an order of Catholic nuns whose commitment is to serving the elderly poor. Literally, there is not a more sympathetic group in the whole world. They've already been in front of the Supreme Court to talk about this issue, and here they find themselves again – simply trying uh, to do the thing that they feel called by God to do without having the government infringe upon their religious convictions. So Christians should certainly pray uh, that the Supreme Court would hopefully once and for all uh, side with the Little Sisters and end this debate going forward.
3: In Puerto Rico this week, they had a uh, 5.5 magnitude earthquake. Puerto Rico has seen immense damage uh, over the, the last decade, really, from natural disasters. And so, uh, it struck, uh, last weekend and there was immediate concerns about the electrical grid there that is just coming back from, uh, hurricane damage and and getting back online. Uh, other quakes ranging from 3.4 to 4.9 on the Richter scale have hit the same area there. Uh, and then also continuing on the international front, North Korea. So Lindsay, I know this is important to you. North Korea says that Kim Jong-un, their leader, has actually made a public appearance and they released a video to that effect. But nobody knows whether to actually trust it.
2: Yes. Was it AI video, uh, a deep fake, as our colleague Jason <laughs> Thacker tells us about? Or was this real?
3: Well, so what what makes it interesting is North Korea has a obviously very healthy propaganda arm and they like to do something over there where they release videos from previous events in an effort to show that they are kind of present day events. Nobody knows exactly what to make of this one, but it is the first time that we've heard anything about Kim Jong-un in uh, the last three or four weeks. And there's been a lot of speculation over the last few weekends that uh, he may be ill. So elsewhere in the world of music, Bobby Bones, who is a nationally known uh, radio host, uh, he was talking about the future of live music and how it could be drive-in concerts. So, hey, who knew? Maybe drive-in church is actually just a trendsetter for the larger culture.
1: That's what I'm talking about. I'd
3: love to see the church yeah, on the cutting edge. Yeah, I wouldn't edge.
2: mind. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't mind sitting in the comfort of my car. Nobody yelling at me to sit down when I'm standing up.
3: Well, he just talks about, how you know, it may not be the best thing long-term for concerts, but it could be something in the future, in the foreseeable future at least, uh, to allow real in-person concerts to return and i thought that was a novel idea and that's a good place to close so Lindsay and josh that's your look at this week in culture
1: so now we're about to talk to our friend and colleague co-worker chelsea patterson Sobolik. chelsea is uh A team member in our DC office, and she's uh, one of our dear friends. And this is the first person to make a return appearance on the podcast. So, Chelsea, just to remind people or people who might have missed the first episode, tell us a little bit about yourself. And while you're doing that, tell us also what's one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry?
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me back. I'm very excited. Uh, So, I serve as one of our policy directors in our D.C. office. I am currently serving in my D.C. apartment because of the coronavirus. We are all working remotely, Um, but I handle a part of our policy portfolio and then continuing to advocate on on issues important to SBC pastors. I am also an author of a book entitled Longing for Motherhood, and one thing God is teaching me right now, um, that would be contentment. I have been so tempted to be uh, envious and jealous of, you know, where other people are quarantining or their house or their scenery or just really prone to coveting and 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 envy right now. So um, the Lord's really teaching me how to find my contentment in Him. And it is not a fun lesson, but it's one I, I continually uh, need to learn in this season. Chelsea, I think the
2: Lord's probably teaching me some of the same lessons as well. This podcast focuses on Christians and culture. So would you tell us what you and those around you, especially your colleagues in the DC offices are paying attention to right now?
0: Absolutely. So we have been working um, quite a lot on the congressional response to COVID-19. So there have been three uh, relief packages passed by Congress and signed into law by President Trump. Um, The the most recent was the CARES Act. Um, So we are watching the implementation of those bills. And we're also uh, beginning to pull together some SBC priorities for a potential phase four COVID relief package. So those types of asks we would be making to Congress would be, um, you know, for our charitable sector, for our nonprofit sector, for vulnerable uh, populations and communities, Um, you know, the uh, COVID-19 crisis knows no borders and does not discriminate, but that means that a lot of the already vulnerable communities will be hit even harder. So we're elevating uh, those up before Congress. Um, And then uh, ongoing religious freedom concerns throughout the country, just keeping our eye on those and monitoring those for our pastors.
3: You're absolutely right that coronavirus uh, knows no borders and goes through different communities in different ways. So we have uh, interviewed several of your co-authors for the new book, Beautifully Distinct. And uh, that book focuses uh, from a kingdom-minded perspective on women and culture. And you write in your chapter about working for God's glory. What are some of the main points of your chapter?
0: Absolutely. So I was so excited that they asked me to write um, on the topic of work. Uh, It is a, a topic I'm very interested in exploring from a Christian perspective. Uh, The first point I make in this chapter is that work predates the fall. It can be very easy for us to bump into frustrations um, with work and to think that it is a result of the fall, but it is not. Work predates the fall. We see that in the opening verses of Genesis that God creates, God works, and who creates uh, his people to work. However, uh, the fall does affect all of creation, and so when we do bump into those frustrations, um, it is a result of the fall that we have frustrations, disappointments, um, lost jobs, all of these things that we we experience, but work is a good thing. Um, I also talk about uh, the purpose of work, which is um, working for um, the love of God and the love of neighbor, and highlighting the fact that if people don't work in a quote-unquote ministry job, their work still deeply matters. You know, if you are a house cleaner or bagging groceries at the grocery store or a stay-at-home mom tending to children, you know, whatever the work you are called to, it matters deeply to God and it can make an impact here on earth and for eternity. So making those two points, I also talk about some um, kind of common things people bump up against in work, such as overworking, uh, people-pleasing, perfectionism, laziness, and also talk about the importance of rest and Sabbath in our work. Because if we aren't ever ceasing our work, number one, we're being disobedient to how God ordered the world and structured um, our lives. But ceasing work is just as important as working hard. So I tried to tackle a lot in one short chapter, but like I said, this is a topic I'm um, very passionate about, and I hope uh, this will be encouraging and helpful for the readers of this new book. And it's so appropriate, Chelsea, especially now
2: as many of us find ourselves in unconventional work situations and we're That's we probably right. find ourselves on, yeah, on different ends of the spectrum as far as what we're struggling with regarding work. So we're thankful for that and for Beautifully Distinct. We're also thankful that you have a heart for international adoption. So can you tell us a little bit about how that developed? And then another question would be in this time when people may have more time on their hands to read something. Is there a resource you would point us to in order to learn more about the subject?
0: So my heart for international adoption uh, started at my birth because I was born in um, an Eastern European country. I was born in Romania and adopted at about a month old. So I have been personally touched by this subject. Uh, My parents also adopted five other children internationally, so it was just a normal part of my life Uh, growing up. I had friends who were also um, international adoptees, so growing up, international adoption was my normal, and um, I've had a heart for for on a personal level, for a long time, and then several years ago, the Lord gave me the opportunity to work on Capitol Hill, and I got to engage on child welfare policy, and I actually got to go on a staff delegation to Haiti, um, on behalf of um, working on international adoption issues, and uh, so I've, I have a personal connection. I have gotten to work on these issues professionally on Capitol Hill. And I also continue to work on uh, these issues here at the ERLC, where continuing to advocate for the importance of international adoption. There's been a steep decline in the international adoption over the last decade for a number of reasons. Um, A lot of those reasons are very good. Um, Domestic adoption in country is becoming more popular, which is a good thing. Uh, Foster care in country is becoming, again, more popular, which we applauded and is a good thing. But for some children, their only chance at having a safe, loving, and permanent home is uh, international adoption. So continuing to talk about the importance of that. Um, And as far as resources uh, people can read, um, I would direct them to Dr. Moore's book, Adopted for Life, that is an excellent personal reflection, theological uh, reflection, and very practical reflection on Adoption. Uh, two more resources. Uh, there's a book called Until Every Child Is Home Why the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans by our friend Todd Chipman. Uh, Dr. Moore actually wrote the foreword to that book, but I've read it. It's excellent. Um, and then this book is not specifically on adoption, but I would recommend it to anyone considering a, adoption or working in the child welfare space. And it's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, And it's about the impacts of trauma on the body, the mind, and the brain. And anyone who has had a touch with adoption, even if it was young, has experienced some type of trauma because there was a break in the natural order of things. So that book really digs into the trauma side of things. So I would recommend that one, again, for people who want to dig into that. Um, A couple other places I would point people KFO, which is short for the Christian Alliance for Orphans, um, has excellent blogs and resources on their website, so I would also direct listeners to check out um, that website as well.
3: Chelsea, your your passion for adoption and child welfare is just uh, further evidence of how lucky we are uh, to, to serve alongside you at the RLC and how uh, fortunate Southern Baptists are to have you as a voice in Washington, D.C. And speaking of our nation's capital, so as you just talked about, you've had a, a long and illustrious career uh, on in Washington, D.C. and serving uh, on our nation's Capitol Hill. Um, so I'm curious, your time there, uh, when all this is over, when coronavirus is over, if folks are thinking about visiting Washington, D.C., what are some of the sites and places that they need to go and visit?
0: So my first recommendation is to visit uh, all of the monuments at night. They're beautiful any time of the day, but they're especially striking at night. So you can walk um, all of them. So I would recommend doing that. I would recommend uh, dinner at Old Ebbett Grill. It is a restaurant a block away from the White House. It has a long history. It's beautiful, good food, fun story about that restaurant it is where uh my now husband michael asked my dad for my hand in marriage so fun personal story but it's a great great place to visit um if you're there in the summer a little known attraction that is just my favorite one of my favorite things about bc every weeknight in the summer a different military band performs a free concert outside the u.s capitol um, at eight o'clock and it's just fabulous. And lastly, I would recommend grabbing a meal at Union Market, which is, it's like Chelsea Market in, uh, New York, like a pared down version, but it's beautiful, good food. Clearly I like to eat half of my recommendations deal with food, but um, those we are, all are a couple Chelsea. I would recommend. Yes. <laughs>
1: Well, Chelsea, that's fantastic, and it's good to have kind of like an insider's look at life in DC. I know tons of people who listen to the podcast. People generally just love to visit our nation's capital, and it's good to have these pro tips about what to do. But beyond that, uh, look, we're so grateful for you for all of the important work you do. Uh, not only serving the ULC, but but helping Christians everywhere uh, think about what it looks like to uh, to faithfully follow Christ, and especially like with your work in, in advocacy for orphans and adoption care and all of these all of these related things It's just incredible. So. We're 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 really grateful for you and we're grateful you took the time to talk to us today.
0: Thanks y'all.
2: This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by the good book company, publishers of a new book called abortion, the latest in the talking points series in this short book, Dr. Lizzie Ling and Vaughn Roberts survey the Christian worldview and help us to think biblically, speak wisely, and act compassionately as we engage with the people, the questions, and the heartache surrounding abortion in a society with very different values. Dr. Lizzie Ling was a doctor for many years and worked in Africa supporting local churches as they cared for those affected by HIV AIDS. Vaughn Roberts is a pastor and author of many books. For more information about this book, go to thegoodbook.com. That's thegoodbook.com.
1: So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we're telling you the things that we're talking about with one another. So Brent, what's on your mind this week?
3: Well, I'm, I'm just continually impressed with how our Baptist sister entities um, are coming up with ways to help serve churches and pastors in this moment. And one thing that really stuck out to me this week was our friends over at Lifeway. They've come up with a new church assistance package. And that can be found at lifeway.com slash church assistance. And it's made available for any congregation around the world. And so it involves things like a hundred dollar credit applied to new and existing Lifeway church accounts, a hundred dollar credit toward resources from Lifeway worship, free access to the generosity by Lifeway digital giving platform and discounts on related resources and some other things. I, I just think in this moment, uh, where we can encourage one another and point pastors and churches to helpful resources. This is a great way to do it. And uh, I really appreciate the the thought that Lifeway has put into this.
1: Hey, fun fact, Brent, do you know what Broadman, do you know where that word or name came from?
3: No. Tell me, Josh.
1: Yeah. So it actually comes from two of the kind of forebears in Southern Baptist history, uh, Basil Manley Jr. and John Broadus. John Broadus famously was like this really epic preacher. They were both founders of Southern Seminary. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that John Broadus was the best preacher alive, uh, which is, you know, pretty high praise from the Prince of Preachers. And so anyway, uh, Broadman, which is, you know, the old name for all the stuff that comes from Lifeway, comes from John Broadus and Basil
3: Manley Jr., All right, Lizzie, take it away. Love love a little bit of SBC history tucked in here to borrow borrow from another podcast that we love.
2: (laughs) Josh has all kinds of SBC history tucked away. Um, Okay, so uh, for my lunchroom segment is just a story that I came upon that I think is rather weird, Elon Musk and his... Mm, don't know if it's fiance, girlfriend, singer Grimes, they announced the birth of their baby boy, whose name is X space A-E space A-12 Musk. And if you're wondering what all of that means, X stands for the unknown variable. A-E is the elven spelling of A-I which is shorthand for artificial intelligence and translates to love in several languages such as Japanese. Then a 12 is a reference to their favorite aircraft. So, um, also a, in the name represents Archangel, which the mom Grimes describes as her favorite song. So it's safe to say this child, at least at first is going to have a bit of an identity crisis.
3: Um, so Lindsay, for listeners and people like me who, who might just be incredibly ignorant, you, you said the elven language. So is that the language that is, uh, spoken by elves, uh, or yeah, is it, you is didn't it something know. related to, is it something related to Elvis Presley? Cause I, I'm here for that, but I, I just need some clarity there.
2: No, elven language. We're living among elves and you didn't even know it. And they speak a language and apparently A.E., is the spelling of AI in the Elven language?
3: Well, so long as they keep um, making those delicious uh, cookies from their
2: treehouse cookies, cookies, that's right.
3: I'm I'm okay with
1: you it. You can
2: name your children anything you want. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, it's pretty weird.
1: You know that is so fascinating to me. One of the things I've said, like jokingly, uh, often is that there's you can't really spell a name wrong. Like you can spell a name however you want to, and tell people to pronounce it however you want to, because you know you don't have to follow the rules of you know phonics in order to create a name. I'm gonna rescind all of that stuff. I just want to retract all the times I ever said that because how nuts? Uh, what are they going to call this kid? <laughs> yeah. I don't really know. Uh, but you know, best of luck.
3: So Josh, uh, I (laughs) I feel like, I feel like Elon Musk is uh, just a very quixotic figure.
1: (laughs) You know, Brent, that's well said. And uh, listen, if you've not like, if you don't know anything about Elon Musk, he really is one of the most fascinating people on the planet uh, for, I mean, not necessarily for any kind of reasons of virtue, but he's just such a fascinating person. I listened to a biography of him uh, a few years ago, and it was about his life, about the creation of the companies that he's uh, you know started, Tesla, SpaceX, back when he was involved in PayPal. Elon Musk incredible, incredibly interesting person. Uh, But to move on from that, so my lunchroom this week is actually gonna be a couple things. Number one is, I'm sure you guys have noticed, one of the ways we're talking to each other the most right now and spending the most time engaging with the world is on social media because we're all isolated from one another. Well, I don't know if anybody else has noticed this. I'm sure you have, uh, but apparently the rage during uh, quarantine has been cooking. I've seen people trying all kinds of of new recipes from, you know, things that are really appealing to me, like different cuts of meats and how to, how to, how to make the perfect steak or uh, folks who are trying to make biscuits is a big thing that I've seen a lot of people doing. And then uh, Megan, who has been helping us with the podcast, she posted this BuzzFeed article about how to uh, make mini pancake cereal. And apparently it's taking over the internet. So uh, we'll link to that and let you see that. I don't know if you're a cereal person. I'm definitely a pancake person. So like maybe there's some real, uh, you know, maybe there's some real benefit to giving this a try, but that's been fascinating to me. Well,
2: the question though, Josh, is, is it mushy cereal? Because who likes mushy cereal
1: you know i haven't had it yet so i would have no way of knowing
2: i just it just sounds like a bad idea
1: i would imagine that it's pretty good if people are like you know going nuts about it on the internet maybe there's some you know (laughs) maybe there's something to it
2: you know josh now if everyone was going nuts about something on the internet would you follow them i
1: mean if it's a food i would probably try it (laughs) So anyway, so I know, and on a more serious note, just to plug a piece from one of my really good friends, Andrew Walker has a two-part essay uh, up on ERLC.com this week, talking about how religious liberty made him a convinced Baptist. And if you haven't, uh, if you haven't seen that, I would really encourage you to go check it out. Uh, Andrew and I have been like talking through the ideas in this piece, and this is the stuff that's really been shaping him as a person uh, over the last several like decades of his life. And so I would encourage you to go check it out. It's really, really good, especially if you do have an interest uh, in, in religious liberty. It is a, it's a really helpful piece for you to check out. But that's, uh, guys, that's my lunch room for the week.
3: All right. So in the inbox this week, we've gotten a number of questions along these lines, so it's probably helpful to distill it down to one thing. Our church is thinking through what steps we need to take to begin reopening and holding services again. What recommendations does the RLC have?
2: So... Brent, that's an appropriate question for today because we have just discussed in the podcast a bunch of resources um, that we can point people to. So for instance, Jared Kennedy's piece on our site, 12 Considerations When You're Reopening Your Children's Ministry. We have our piece by Daniel Patterson and Jen Kittner about things you should be thinking through as you are looking to open your church post-coronavirus. So things that your church should be thinking through and examples of what other churches are doing in order to start services back after the coronavirus.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful, Lindsay. And then I would also just want to urge you to take a look at uh, what Brent mentioned that is available from Lifeway in terms of their church assistance package. There is a there's a host of really helpful things in there that are meant to help churches uh, kickstart various parts of their ministry programs as they are as they're coming back together. So that also uh, we've got that linked in the show notes is a is a helpful resource uh, for churches to consider and look at. But those are those are some key resources we would definitely point you to as you're considering reopening and trying to think through all the steps uh, that that is going to require of you. We just want to say thanks so much uh, for listening to the show today. And just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about in the show notes. If you like the podcast, you can uh, help us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review. It just helps more people discover the podcast. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, uh, we want to say thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week with more
2: content.